Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. Today, I'm super excited about our guest. Joel Slayton is his name. And uh, Joel has had a, a long, successful career. He's still doing it. Uh, he's been a, an artist, a teacher, a researcher, an administrator. He's worn a lot of hats in his career. He started the Cadre Lab at San Jose State University, which is their new media lab that was one of the first in the country. And frankly, many, many other programs that now exist have patterned themselves after Cadre. Um, and was also a former executive director of Zero One, which is one of the premier art and technology festivals in the world, doing much more than just the festival now. But you'll hear about that in the interview. One of the reasons that I'm really excited to talk to Joel is that you know, we've had a lot of emerging artists on lately, and we talk a lot about what's going on in the world of art and technology today, but this guy has been doing it for over 40 years. And so he provides a much more interesting perspective about kind of how we got to where we are today, uh, what trends are real, which, which ones, you know, we want to steer clear of based on what he knows. Uh, so super interesting guy. I think you're really going to enjoy his interview and his work. So please stay tuned. Welcome Joel Slayton. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of State of the Art. I have to remind myself to say State of the Art. I've been saying the State of the Art, and I'm getting yelled at by my producers. So so welcome to another episode of State of the Art. Um, we have with us today a, a really interesting guy, Joel Slayton. Welcome to the program. Thank you for for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. So so Joel, hey, you've yeah. you've been in this world of art and technology in many different ways for a very long time now. I mean, you've been an artist, a curator, a researcher, a teacher, um, and a, a career that's spanned well over 40 years now. Um, and I think where I'd like to start is, you know, we've been speaking to a lot of emerging artists lately who are kind of at the beginning of their career. And, you know, so we kind of know what art and tech looks like today. But the context 40 years ago, I assume, was a lot different. Can you tell us a little bit about what it meant to be in that world of art and technology in the 70s and 80s? Um, sure. It was it was crazy. <laughs> um, the times were as you know tumultuous as they are today. Um, you know, society had kind of was breaking down and being reinvented. Um, yeah. not, not dissimilar to what we're experiencing, you know, right now. Um, if you think about the seventies, you know, Richard Nixon was president. <laughs> um, we we're, you know, Watergate, uh, the fall of Saigon, the end of the Vietnam war, um, the Iranian revolution. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on, but it also includes, you know, Apple computer right, and personal computing and uh, video games were introduced. So it, there was a lot going on in the 70s that kind of framed a background for what contemporary artists were um, doing. 
And of course, artists have always been involved with technology since, you know, cave painting. Um, but they were also participating in this um, social phenomenon of deconstructing and reconstructing the world. And if I had to put my finger on the thing that was the most exciting about the times, it was that. It, mm. it wasn't the specific technologies that were coming about. It was this opportunity of an artist to sort of jump into that world and make a difference. Hmm. So what were, I mean, what were some of the scenes that, that you were kind of experimenting with that, that uh, kind of had that new, exciting sheen to it? Um, so, you know, performance art was a big deal. And um, you, know, you had folks like... Chris Burden and Yoko Owen, many others were just sort of blowing everybody's minds with how they were approaching the strategy of what it meant to engage audiences. And mm. um, at the same time, there was, uh, you know, the very important to me personally was the land art movement with folks like uh, Smithson and and Richard Long and and, and others. And then this emerging technology uh, world of theater and uh, with Laurie Anderson and, and um, Nam June Pike. And, you know, it was, it was quite the scene. I mean, stuff was all over the place, right? And, yeah. um, you know, you're, the influences in, in rock and roll music and it was, it was to be a young man cutting one's teeth on computing right moment in the right time right place for me personally and where were you at, at where was the place where were you actually at the beginning of your career i was at mit um i had just gotten out of graduate school um studying film and photography which i was not really good at either one of those things um <laughs> I was I was the kid in the dark room who was like destroying the place, <laughs> and my films are not not to be seen. <laughs> They're pretty nasty, um, but that that actually was the sort of catalyst that shoved me into the MIT environment, which was a disrespect for materials. And hmm. um, I was um, I finished my my graduate program. Uh, the last semester at MIT and I was offered a job to stay there and I was working with a woman named Muriel Cooper who um, an extraordinary individual who was I think is a recognized leader she ran a laboratory called the visible language workshop which was really an interdisciplinary um, haven for misfits from art and design and media and technology sort of gather together and collaborate and work on inventing a whole range of tools that we wanted to use to make the stuff we wanted to make. And it just so happened that much of that gave way to um, innovation that then drove the personal computing industry and many, many other things. So it was, it was just a really rich time to be um, on the East coast and in Boston in the midst of, uh, that, that revolution and Muriel was at the forefront of it. This would have been pre media lab days, right? Yes. 
So there were five groups that came together to form the Media Lab. Um, the Visible Language Workshop was one of the one of those, and I had the opportunity to help, you know, get that instantiated in the early days. And so, what ended up kind of bringing you out west? Because you're you're now in San Jose, right? Yeah. Well, um, MIT was such an incredible place to be, but it was a it was a certain kind of commitment that one would have to make to be there long term. And um, there was California. (laughs) It was warm (laughs) and and sunny. And uh, there was this place called Silicon Valley. And uh, in my heart of hearts, I, I, I knew that was where I needed to be. And I had this fantasy of, uh, being an artist who would, you know, insert themselves into this crazy weird world in in California, Silicon Valley specifically, and figure it out and see what I could do as an artist to shape it or influence it. And that was more important to me than staying on the East Coast and sort of carving out an academic career there. Yeah. And uh, so I carved out an academic career here instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who has had to endure an East Coast winter, especially up in New England, I think can probably sympathize oh, with you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. I had a, uh, my wife had an MGB little sports car uh, cloth you know, roof. Oh. It lasted for about eight weeks into the winter time. <laughs> it got so cold. It just cracked when you tried to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you need a block heater and, uh, yep. well, I guess pretty much just to keep it inside if it has a, <laughs> a cloth top, but, uh, so, okay. So, so what, what's the timeline for actually moving out West then? Early 1980s. Okay. And what was your work like? What were you doing creatively at that time? Well, I was quite fortunate because I left MIT with um, a portfolio of images that I had produced um, in collaboration with folks from the old Polaroid Corporation. And Polaroid had developed a 20 by 24 inch CRT imaging system, first Mm -hmm. of its kind. So actually pulling images off of a computer screen was like unheard of. I mean, it, it just, it was unheard of. Right. <laughs> and at the, in the MIT visible language, and high resolution play screens and the software that the team had developed allowed us to manipulate, you know, begin to manipulate photographs in interesting ways and combine them with graphics and that sort of thing. Um, and I had produced this rather unique set of images that, uh, really, nobody had seen anything quite like that. And um, so I had that under my arm, and I went across the country and got to California, started shopping around. And the first place I went, I took it to uh, an old company called Grinnell Systems that made original frame buffer technology. And I mm-hmm. showed them these images, and they were like, what are these? We, we have no <laughs> idea what we're looking at. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I you know, produced them on your machines. You know, did you know your machines could do this? And they're like, no, <laughs> we didn't know that. And uh, so why don't you hang out with us? Uh, keep making this sort of thing. 
um, and teach about what our machines don't do. And I thought, <laughs> and the light bulb kind of went off in my head at the time. I thought, okay, so that's what an artist does. An artist goes into corporate, you know, environments and challenges the technology and teaches, uh, you know, helps helps folks learn about what their technologies can do that they're not doing currently. And uh, in the process, maybe you influence or change the direction of those things. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's funny, man. It strikes me that, uh, that you know we talk a lot on this on this program about sort of this so called intersection of art and technology, and um, you know I think from from an outside perspective, those two things look distinctly different, right? And yet, yeah. the more you talk to artists and the more you talk to technologists you realize there's kind of that same renegade spirit in both of them. That's like, well, let's just figure out what this thing can do and then let's make something out of it. Because that's a, you know, that idea of let's show, let's show someone what their technology can do that they didn't even know they could do. Like that's a hacker, right? Like that's how hackers make money. They go in and they break things and they say, Hey, did you know that it could break this way? Um, so it seems like you're kind of almost in that same hacker space that a lot of the early Silicon Valley people were in. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And um, I often describe the the laboratory that, that I started out here at the university at San Jose State as just that. It was a place for artists to come in and hack technology. Mm-hmm. And um, then you have to figure out, well, what do people need to know to learn to have the skill set to be able to do that. And um, it's both an attitude, but it's also artists had to learn how to code. Yeah. And, um, and not just code well, code aberrationally. Code, code <laughs> in ways that people had never seen code written before. Yeah. And um, it was often really ugly code, but it would <laughs> do things that, you know, were surprising. And, um, that was, yeah, that was an amazing period. That period in the '80s when, when that was uh, the focus of things. Uh, have you found that there's a personality type? Because you know, I again, I talk to a lot of artists and I talk to a lot of technologists, and you know, I'm curious. Obviously, you're around both worlds as well. Have you found that there's a certain um, X factor that? that lets certain artists really engage with technology because there's certainly sort of technophile artists as well, right? Traditionalists and people who say, I don't, you know, I don't want to touch it. Like not with a 10 foot pole, they want to preserve the sanctity of it or whatever it is. What is it especially about the brand of artists that, that is also a tinkerer that feels comfortable sort of getting their hands dirty with technology? Well, typically I'd say they don't fit anywhere, Hmm. (laughs) anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, they're just—they're not a good fit for traditional art school. They're not a good fit, maybe in engineering or in uh, science disciplines. You know, they just their their heads are in multiple places, not not in one. They somehow grew up experimenting with stuff hmm. and have a deep relationship with you know taking things apart and putting them back together and most often not getting them back together the way they were intended and <laughs> even better, yeah, right? Even yeah, making ha- you know, that kind of early hacking kind of mentality is, is, you know, certainly part of it. Um, and I think they also, um, 
they they despise art. <laughs> and I mean that in the most positive way, you know, um, that they 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 don't embrace the the pretentious behavior of the traditional art world and, and kind of rile up against that and but do it with a sense of respect and and understanding and knowledge so they have to kind of outsmart the art world to outsmart <laughs> itself and them themselves you know so it is this kind of special character and and um yeah i mean that if you can create a platform that that locates and nurtures and helps people like that become what they're going to become that's how you change the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's a really good transition because you've done that, right? You've created a couple of these organizations that have either promoted or housed and educated uh, these sort of odd job technologist uh, artists, right? Can you talk a little bit about um, about your work at Cadre and at Zero One? I'm sure. So um, Cadre was established in 1984 and I mean at the time there were probably four maybe five um, academic centers in the US that had any kind of specialized um, you know educational program for artists to engage with technology and um, so it was a very early player in in that regard um, what distinguished the place was that we started as a graduate program, not an undergraduate program, and we sought out and the exactly I just described to be in our in our graduate school. So um, the early work that was done there um, established a kind of um, methodology where the artists were encouraged to be serious researchers. They were encouraged to be coders. They were encouraged to, you know, we're using the term hack, but, but, you know, explore or experiment with technologies in, in, uh, unorthodox ways. And, um, and then to get that work out, not just sit on it, but put it into the world in some way. Um, so Cadre grew up in a very kind of healthy moment in time where hmm. I was in that academic institution that had absolutely you know, no freaking idea what I was doing and for <laughs> the most part didn't care, um, <laughs> they, <laughs> which is kind of unusual. And they, you yeah. know, when I, when I came there, they said, here's, here's some rooms, here's some money, here's go, go make this thing happen. And then they literally got out of the way. And, um, that was a, an amazing opportunity uh, to build, you know, an academic environment under that, that kind of, um, operational, you know, framework. So that program is still alive and well and kicking and actually one of the largest academic units in the university. But more importantly, you can't go to a university anywhere, anywhere where you can't find a digital media art something or other program right and um almost all of them whether they know it or don't know it are patterned after these early experiments that were done by four or five institutions that laid the groundwork for what it meant to do interdisciplinary you know transdisciplinary work experimentation uh, artists 
being taken serious as researchers. All of those things were shaped in those that those first couple decades of of this uh, field, and uh, I'm very proud of that. It's a great thing. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you mentioned you can't go to you know you see these programs at community colleges now. It's not to say they're all doing it very well. (laughs) You know, I think there's there's a lot of schools doing it better than others. But um, obviously, for for those who have been around to see it, Cadre um, has been there for a long time and and has has always been kind of a a a northern light, if you will, something to kind of shoot for and set the pattern of of how to do this thing well. Um, What? So I'm curious. I mean. As an artist, obviously, your goals are going to be a little bit different than as an administrator of these organizations. But what what really drove you um, to to build these cadre and zero one out as opposed to really sinking a hundred thousand percent into your creative career? I really wanted a cool place to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> nice and and you had to there there was nowhere to go. Yeah, you know, there, I mean, there were no, there weren't VLWs on every corner, or MITs on every corner, or you know, other. I mean, there were other institutions, of course, but um, I, I very early on, I decided that the most important thing for me to do was build the community that I wanted to exist in, hmm. that I would prosper in, and so it was very selfish in a way to 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 come from that place, but. It was also a very giving place. So, um, and I didn't distinguish, and I learned this from Muriel Cooper at, at MIT. I didn't really distinguish between my own art practice, my, you know, educational role, responsibilities as a professor, and the work I was doing curatorially or in program building. All those things were part and parcel of the same pie for me. And I approached all of them with a very similar set of strategies. And, and in, in most, you know, I tried very hard to integrate them, to make them part of one another and inform one another and create opportunities that way. So certainly, I mean, one of the things I learned how to do was put people together from diverse backgrounds to do extraordinary things. And um, that's a skill that I learned early on and have cultivated since until this day. Hmm. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about zero one as well? Sure. So um, zero one was founded by a woman named Andy Cunningham, who was the publicist jobs when they launched Apple computer Hmm. and or specifically the Mac. And, um, Andy went on to become a very well-established person in marketing communications worldwide and um, became an Aspen Institute fellow and and so on. Um, Very accomplished woman in the technology arena very early in the game. Um, It was her brainchild, and she had uh, um, put together a program in Los Angeles um, where she had been doing a, a sort of large art and technology festival. and But she was located here in Palo Alto. So um, she started fishing around, bringing folks together to talk about whether 
build um, an international event that would bring together the art, technology, science together into some form of a festival or, or program. And uh, that's when I got involved with the organization on the board of directors. And then about seven, eight years later, she convinced me to become the executive director of the organization and actually put some, um, put some foundation in place that this thing could, could sit on. And so when I came in, I think it was 2008, something like that. Um, a, a curator and friend of mine, Steve Dietz had been running the organization from the artistic side, curatorial side. And he and I began to collaborate, put together, um, the first international contemporary art biennial in the United States focused around art and technology. And it was a huge success and massive undertaking here in San Jose. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people attended this thing. Um, artwork from all over the world. And then from there, I, I, I began to build on top of that to put build an infrastructure that could support this in an ongoing way. And uh, you know, six, I think 600 artists have been featured through zero one programs, um, hmm. 45 countries. We were a very large um, commissioning agency for new work, did a lot of work in the public art um, domain and many, many artists who worked their way through zero ones, um, uh, curatorial programs, uh, that was their launch pad into their professional careers and have done done yeah. quite well overall. So it's, it's, it's been a great program and uh, I had a good run there, but decided that uh, at some point, you know, I was exhausted and needed to do <laughs> some other things. Hey, everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. Congratulations to you. Zero One really has grown into being one of kind of the the premier events in in this world, right? I mean, this is something that people really aspire to to be featured in. So, you know, it's it's grown from yeah, absolutely from its grassroots to a, a huge show. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't know is that that within Zero One, besides being this this platform for the presentation of works, it was also um, we had an opportunity to build out a um, innovation challenge driven residency program that huh. brought artists together with Silicon Valley companies for the exact same reason that we were talking about a little bit of, a little while ago <laughs> and convinced the companies that it was a 
good idea for them to have to embed these individuals in their their worlds, but with the specific innovation challenges in mind that they would attack. Yeah. And that that was really very positive. And then that program has grown into this uh, relationship with the U.S. State Department that has blossomed into wow. an international exchange program for artists, um, taking this entrepreneurial innovation model outside the confines of the U.S. and helping communities all around the world solve problems. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's funny when you talk about you know, embedding real living, breathing artists into technology companies. I mean, you know, that's something when you're in the church of Silicon Valley, you hear that a lot, right? Creative thinking and thinking outside the box in the technology world. But, you know, there's plenty of businesses here that, uh, (laughs) the, the idea of actually working with an artist to solve sort of innovation problems is novel. So, um, when there are programs out there who are working to actually do that actively, um, I mean, typically it yields huge results. I mean, we've talked to uh, the Nokia Bell Labs on this show, and you know that's an example of someone doing that kind of work. It's always successful, but there's not enough people doing it. And there really aren't enough companies that right. Silicon Valley or elsewhere that understand the value added of having artists and that special thing that they know and can do involving creativity that no one else can do. Yeah. And um, it's a, that very early stage upfront yeah. um, ideation that occurs with artists that doesn't occur in other disciplines so easily. Yeah. And so there, there is a kind of domain of specialization that if you can figure out how that intersects with some specific goals of a company, yeah, it can be a rich experience for everybody involved. And yeah, it's it's a little like the the uh the buddhist concept of beginner's mind right except i don't know if for artists it's so much beginner's mind as it is just irreverent mind like they don't really care about the the confines or perceived confines of what a technology can or cannot do they're just going to try to try to manifest what's in their head anyways right yeah and and you know if you if you go around you ask the fortune 500 ceos and right yeah what's the most valuable uh characteristic of an individual that you're looking for to hire, they're going to say creativity, right? Unquestionably. And you ask them, well, what is that exactly? And (laughs) then it gets complicated, right? Right. So, and then they, then that often devolves into a conversation about, uh, into that world. And so that's not the totality of it. Artists bring something extra. You know, that it's that unbridled experimentation, that that hacking, that tear it apart, you know, figure out what else it can do. Yeah. Um, that invention, that discovery piece that happens that that really artists own. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that spirit. That's what makes that's I mean, that's you know, that's why the world loves artists. Right. They're the ones that are willing to kind of think that boldly and that outside the box because that scares other people. You know, when you get it's one thing when you're talking about being in a studio and and everybody trying to be as creative as they can. But when you're talking about in the context of a business, right, there's there's other constraints. People have to make money. You need there's deadlines. You're trying to get products out the door. And so that's why, yeah, of course, everybody likes the idea of being creative. But do you like the idea of how scary that is 
when you have all of these other sort of restrictions and deadlines that you're trying to hit, do you have yeah. the the guts to think like an artist? That's exactly right. And um, most don't. Right. <laughs> most don't. And we, and we need to understand that. And, um, but there are, you know, there, you occasionally run into the, the, the right folks who get it because yeah. they too have had some experience, you know, uh, in their lives or in their past. And, and they, they, they smell, they can smell it right you know, coming. And, and <laughs> typically they're, they, that's where you want to be. If you can find that, that sweet spot. Yeah. Well, so, so, you know, you've, you've spent your career kind of, um, looking for that sweet spot and, uh, finding it, I'm sure sometimes missing it, sometimes finding it, but I, I'm curious, um, you know, what do you, what do you kind of see around the corner? What are you excited about in this world as, as it's evolving with art and technology and artists working with technology? Um, that's a, such a tough question because it's sort of like asking you to predict the future, you know, <laughs> right. um, well, but, maybe maybe it's easier asked as, uh, what what do you think is bullshit? What are you calling bullshit on? What are you not excited about that people are um, talking about? I'm calling bullshit on artificial intelligence. Yeah, tell me yeah, why. I'm I mean, curious. Come on, <laughs> come on. I mean, yeah, it's it's grown into this huge marketing ploy to sell mm. the public anything that behaves unexpectedly smart <laughs> and call it intelligent. And I mean, you can understand why and where that's coming from, but it's really doing a disservice to those who are deeply in the game of figuring out what intelligence is and what it isn't. And, yeah. you know, working towards building models that uh, uh, can bring us closer to to you know, understanding what it means to be intelligent. So, you know, I mean, not everything that behaves, you know, <laughs> kind of smart, and especially if, if it's involving something like machine learning where you don't really understand why it's doing what it is. Right. Oh, that's smart. You know, oh, that's, yeah. And so I think there's this con convoluted, you know, con convoluted, um, uh, a, a world that those things are, are existing in and bubbled up in. And there was yeah. a reason why folks abandoned artificial intelligence in the eighties, you know, and, and there's a reason for why it's resurged in the, in this decade. And it's, you know, it's because it's, it's, you know, we, we need these smart little things in our lives that just make things more complicated, <laughs> difficult <laughs> to do. Right, right, right. No, that, that's over-exaggerating, but yeah. yeah, I think that's one of the things that we need to pay really careful attention to. Yeah. AI. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that's, uh, we have that debate a lot on this show and it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the, you know, there, there is real interesting technology around it. Um, but I think there's a massive gap between what does exist and its utility versus, um, what people are being sold. Right. Exactly. So, and, uh, you know, to me, fundamentally, it comes down to the, the fear mongering around kind of like the idea of a robot revolution or the singularity or something. You know, I think yeah. when you talk to technologists who work with it, this stuff, I mean, if anything, they're frustrated by how far away we are from that. <laughs> exactly. And and the recognition that that distance um, represents a place to play 
an experiment. Yeah. And an experiment is really critical. Yeah. What what are some other programs out there? I mean, so you've been a part of Cadre, you've been a part of Zero One. What are some other programs out there that you think people should kind of be tuned into if they want to know what's going on in this world? Well, the difference between, you know, the the 80s, 90s, <laughs> maybe early part of this this uh, century and today is that there are great programs everywhere. Um, I mean, academically, there are great programs across the world that and there are so many more people involved in the field who are brilliant. Yeah, you know, they're they're everywhere. And so it's it's not hard to find someplace that's like really valuable. I think the trick is finding something that's um, in a person who's going to go and participate in those programs, and that's that's the job of you know the individual to kind of you know, figure that out for themselves. But it, it I think it's it's a lot harder today than it was you know couple decades ago for sure it's like hmm. you know what graduate school should i go to geez i don't know i mean you know there's a <laughs> hundred of them um so i think now it, you know there's there's more of an opportunity to pick and choose and and not based just on the institution's reputation but the individuals who compromise those environments and you can go study with somebody you know and that that's pretty awesome you know? yeah and whether it's you know it's, UCLA or San Diego or NYU or MIT or the Art Institute. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things, you, a lot of places and a lot of choices. So I don't know that I could pick out and say, oh, well, this is the best place to go do this or that. You know, yeah. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be presumptuous to do that. Um, at the same time, there's a real good case to be made for not going to any of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, A true renegade and, spirit. Just, just go and start doing shit because you can now. Yeah, you know it's so much easier to make stuff if digital technologies and and or for that matter any technologies, you know, yeah. by, whether they're biological or computing, um, where you can really do sophisticated work. And um, so, I mean, there's you could be the renegade uh, for sure. Um, I think a lot, and a lot of people are doing that. But you could also find yourself in these corporate contexts where there's huge amount of play for for really smart people to do extraordinary things because of the resources and and other expertise that's present. Hmm. So um, there are a lot of choices. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> while we don't have one or two things that we can point to for a user or listener to immediately look up, that's probably good news for, for the world <laughs> that we're talking about, that there's too many to yeah. pick from. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even to the community college level, like you mentioned before, sure, know, it's, this is open to everybody now, which is pretty incredible. The real, I think the, the big challenge here is also, um, you know, knowing what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to right. and all of it. Right. That's harder because <laughs> there's a lot of crap. Yeah. Too. Like and AI. Exactly. <laughs> With, you know, more the merrier, but the more, the larger the challenge of figuring out where to spend your time, attention and money. Yeah. 
signal to noise, right? Signal to noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for for these thoughts. I I also want to give you a chance, although I have uh literally no transition as an interviewer to ask this question, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about um, some of your most recent work, just because we had talked about this before. Um, and I really want our listeners to hear about the the L&J Ranch, especially. I'm, I think this project is really cool. Could you tell our listeners about this? Um, sure. So um, this is my newest um, initiative. Uh, it's called the L&J Ranch. It's a, it's a virtual ranch. Um, for right now, it ultimately may become something, you know, physical and located geographically somewhere or in multiple places to be determined. But for right now, it's, it's really kind of an umbrella, um, that's focused on, um, projects, uh, research and what we refer to a sense of place. Um, it's, it's a, it's an umbrella that I can uh, cherry pick the kinds of things that I'm interested in doing and work with the kinds of people I'm interested in working with. Um, the project that we're going to launch, the first project out of the gate, is something called the Antenna Project. Um, it involves um, converting my Airstream trailer into a television broadcast station. <laughs> um, mobile station, and uh, we're going to be taking a year-long journey across America where we host uh, a morning coffee show uh, in rural America where there are land use issues and challenges that are being um, So we're going to launch this in next uh, not sure exactly if it'll happen in, in early summer, or late summer, in southwestern uh, New Mexico, um, on a ranch where the Gila River watershed um, runs through the ranch, and you, the conservationists and the ranchers in that area are struggling to cohabitate, <laughs> and um, you know where government and policy. And that way of trying to resolve conflict doesn't work. A morning coffee show with good food, good coffee, entertainment, <laughs> investigative reporting, and interviews um, might just do the trick. And so, as my my daughter said the other, you're gonna be broadcasting rocks. <laughs> meaning yeah this is a narrow this is very narrow cast you know it may only reach one two or three people at a time and right. yeah, we'll do the appropriate documentation there'll probably be a podcast that goes or something that goes along with it but it really is about creating a platform that brings these brings folks together in a comfortable environment to talk about stuff that really matters to them very deeply and see if they can see if some issues can get resolved so we're yeah. going to be moving this across the the u.s um for uh, for a year and uh, <laughs> it's an epic <laughs> it's an epic project that will resolve itself as it goes yeah i love it man i mean i when you first told me about it what immediately kind of clicked in my head was the old pirate radio stations and yeah. uh you know the stories of of ships kind of parking 
you know, 10 miles offshore in, in the UK. And I know that's, um, it's interesting, but that's how a lot of the UK got a lot of their uh, international music. And, um, you know, not a lot of people know that reggae was actually way bigger in the UK way before it ever was in America, largely because of these pirate radio stations. And um, yep. so ever since I learned about that, like, I, I know that's why Eric Clapton did uh, the uh, uh, Bob Marley covers. And uh, it, it's it always struck me as a really interesting way to share ideas. But this idea of kind of bringing it to the next level and and uh, casting a morning coffee show <laughs> over the pirate airwaves. I love it. That's that's a really cool idea. Yeah. I'm I'm really interested in the this kind of hybrid space of old yeah. technology and new technology. Yeah. Um I'm become over the years I've become less interested in future casting. Like yeah. what's it all gonna turn out to be or <laughs> what's the next best thing, you know, all that kind of stuff, to really looking at what I, I describe as, you know, proximity futures. Yeah, the one right around the corner that if you choose this now, it will look like that. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and those are things that actually impact our lives and choices that we can make today that will allow us to address the kinds of big problems that we have, whether it's you know literacy or poverty or you know climate or you know pick one. You know, yeah, um, those are things we we have to deal with right now. We don't have the luxury of speculating about what technology might do in 50 years for mm. those things. It can do things right now. Yeah. Um, but to get there, you got to bring that old stuff with you because the old stuff brings, brings people, brings attitudes. It's like, it's like taking rock and roll with you. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't sit, just stop. You got to kind of bring all of it along together. Yeah. And um, so I, I'm interested in that, in that old new, space hybrid yeah. space yeah, it's interesting because it's a it's also kind of a um I, I think that's a space that a lot of people are kind of sitting in now because because you know there were so many um especially the technology world there was so much going on in the last 40 years that we have kind of this like nostalgia for something that wasn't all that long ago and still has a huge amount of utility <laughs> while exactly. we're still kind of at this rocket pace, you know, blasting into the future, but all of that stuff is so uncertain and could go any direction. It's kind of nice to have the grounding and the things that at least we know worked at one point. Right. <laughs> yeah. And still work today. Yeah. So, I mean, people are amazed when they find out that, you know, television still works. <laughs> you can, you right. can put up a, you can put up an antenna and get HD broadcast for free. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to play into this, you know, game of $200 a month cable fees and all this crap that, yeah. you know, just become indoctrinated to think that's how it is. It's always been that way. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not true. Right. So, re, you know, there's a political motive here too, is like recapturing that, that bandwidth that's public domain yeah. and use it for something useful, Yeah, you know, or not so useful as the case might be, but, <laughs> right. you know, fun at play least. with it. Yeah. Just play with it. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, this is awesome. I, I mean, I could talk to you obviously for hours about this work, but obviously the podcast is slightly less than that. So, so we'll cut it there, but, um, but it, it was so much fun talking to you about sort of where you've been and where you're going. But, uh, 
but before I cut you loose, we got to do these rapid fire questions. Our oh, yeah, listeners okay. know we always got to have a couple rapid fire questions at the at the end of the episode. So, uh, so three questions. I'll fire them off and just fire back whatever comes off the top of your head. All right. It's all like right. a Rorschach test. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We'll, right. we'll psychoanalyze this later. Okay. All right. So, what is your biggest pet peeve? Um, art school. <laughs> <laughs> says the guy who's made a career in <laughs> building art yeah. schools but <laughs> yeah i hate art school i like it all right would you would you rather lose the ability to walk or the ability to talk oh that's a hard one um probably the ability to walk <laughs> don't want to sacrifice I, communication I, I, well i think mobility is Mobility is underrated. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Underrated or overrated? You're getting rid of the ability to walk. I lost you there. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll, we'll move on to the next question. I was just wasting time anyways. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, last but certainly not least, uh, this is a good one. If you could relive one life ev- one life event, what would it be? Of my life? Yes. Oh, man. Um, if I could relive one life. Um, I would probably go to my daughter's birth. Yeah? Yeah, and pay attention this time. <laughs> <laughs> Make some memories this time. Because I, I missed the whole thing. <laughs> Just went over my head. Very nice. Well, yeah. hope she doesn't tune into the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. man. Well, Joel, it's been it's really been a pleasure. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. How can our listeners uh, hear more about your work or find out more about you? Um, JoelSlayton.com. There we go. We'll throw that in the show notes so listeners can uh, find you as well. Joel, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. You bet. You too. Thanks so much. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of State of the Art. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Joel Slayton is such an interesting guy. And uh, man, there's so many things I could say about him. But I, I, I think to put it simply, this guy just is the sort of human version of the artistic spirit. He's kind of a renegade, a lot rock and roll, just likes people who think differently. And uh, I'll get along with that kind of person any day. If you would like to learn a little bit more about Joel, I wish you would. Uh, please check him out on his website, joelslayton.com. That's J-O-E-L-S-L-A-Y-T-O-N.com. Also in the show notes. And if you like this episode, if you like what we're doing here at State of the Art, please rate and review the podcast. That's about the most helpful thing you can do for us uh, to help spread the word to your friends or anybody else who you think might be interested in our program. So thank you so much. I am Andrew Herman, and this has been State of the Art.